Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to everything weird, unexplained, and mysterious in the world. Today on the show is going to be part 10 of the Nephilim. It's been a while since I covered the topic, and I always did want to come back to it. And this episode is going to have a focus on the demonic aspect of the Nephilim, which very much looks to be the origin of demons in Abrahamic religions. I'm pretty sure I'm going to mispronounce a lot of stuff, so if I do, don't worry, I'm aware of it. And I just don't have time to look up all kinds of stuff of what to pronounce all the time when I'm in the heat of the moment doing things. So if you like speak Hebrew, for example, and you hear me saying something that's obviously incorrect, I know. And as always, I'm just going to be exploring this whole thought bubble. And I'm not trying to give any absolutes of what is or is not true or what somebody should or should not believe. I'm a storyteller who relays information with as little bias as I can, though I do have uh, some mess-ups here and there concerning that. And quick warning, demons, we're going to be talking about demons, so if that freaks you out, probably shouldn't listen to this episode. In any case, let's get weird, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. So there's the religious way to look at the Nephilim, of course, and all the mistranslations that led to the mainstream religious views on them that I've already talked about in past shows on the Nephilim. And then there's the ancient alien way to look at the Nephilim, which is highly popular, especially in New Age circles. But there's also the whole demonic side of the Nephilim, which I have yet to go over in detail. But then again, how do we define Nephilim? Just what kind of being were the Nephilim in the first place? From one perspective, they are semi-divine beings. And actually, the only time that any heavenly entity interacts with somebody, or I mean humans, in like a, a human way, like having offspring with them. This is the only place it's really found in any scriptures. M mainstream ones. In Kabbalah, Lilith, the first woman and first demon, I guess, actually has sex with humans all the time, creating demonic offspring that's a story for another time. Then there's the idea that they were mere mortals and offsprings of the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, also pronounced Benai Elohim, Benai Elohim. I've heard it pronounced a couple different ways. But as we went over in the first episode concerning the Nephilim, this is a mistranslation. It's not the sons of God, it's the sons of the gods, because Elohim is plural, at least originally. But there's also sides that um, have specifically linked these things to the sons of Seth, the son of Adam and Eve after the death of Abel. 
Another idea is that the Nephilim and the Watchers are one in the same type of entity. And then the last view looking at them is that they're pretty much just a, like a temporal notation. Well, I guess you could also throw in the extraterrestrial stuff on top of that, but this episode is going to be focused on like the dogmatic narrative concerning all these viewpoints. We're going to mainly go down the hybrid of the divine entities and human reality tunnel. And it's hard to understand ancient texts in Hebrew because if you're not Jewish, you can read something that you think is obviously meant to mean a certain thing based on the words I mean. But Hebrew has such subtext used differently depending on what Hebrew letter is being represented. This subtext or hidden meaning is lost on anyone who is not fluent in the language and the culture. This is where a lot of the confusion and different contradicting views come from. What people think has meant one thing means something entirely different. So I'm not going to even try and say there is any definitive way to look at the Nephilim, especially from sources outside of Judaism. Now what I do know is, to a high degree actually, I know Christian theology and many different tales of demons throughout those religions, all the Abrahamic religions, as well as ancient religions and history in general. So I actually do come from a place of a certain level of expertise on that level, having spent years and years of it being hammered into my head. Trust me, I know a thing or two about demons. I've actually been a demonologist to an extent since I was very young, believe it or not. <laughs> Though not in the way you think, more so... It's kind of hard to explain. I got in trouble researching demons. Got in trouble doing that. Uh, I think I weirded a lot of people out too sometimes. Especially when they'd walk up behind me and see what I'm reading and be like, what the hell is that? Anyway, but... It was out of goodwill, not anything dark. I was always told how bad demons are and to stay away from anything demonic. And you know, this is of the devil or that is of the devil. This is demons or that is demons. You know, the usual stuff. That was mostly from like exterior Christian forces though, because my parents are actually really chill Christians and probably the only like form of Christianity that I think is like legitimate or not toxic. Cause there's a, there's a right way to practice Christianity. And there's a wrong way to practice Christianity. And the wrong way sees demons in everything. Also in the right way, they don't judge people and they just accept people as they are. And it's not all that fire and brimstone stuff. That doesn't mean I wasn't exposed to these types of people though when I was spending like so much time at church and youth group, Bible study, you name it. I spent a lot of time surrounded by people who were just, just like terrified of demons. But I was lucky enough to, early in life, encounter a book called The Art of War, which pretty much changed my entire life trajectory, and also sparked my fascination with demonology. And I know that seems maybe like a, a weird connection to have between those two things, but hear me out. It's That's really, really... It'll make sense. Hold on. Let me think. Okay, so... In the book The Art of War... It says the only way to defeat enemies consistently and assuredly is to know them as well as you know yourself. Me being raised in dogma, when I read this I came to the conclusion that everyone was wrong about demons. And this, the strategy that they had surrounding them actually put them in danger. You can't fight something that you know nothing about. Hence my childish idea of why I should know demonology. It originated in a desire to protect others. 
And yes, that seems silly. I was much younger and more naive and hadn't yet to see like the bigger picture of things. And I know that I mostly never talk about myself. So that might be kind of weird me saying all this stuff, but I just wanted to give you like a little preview of how I come from a place of like pretty deep knowledge concerning certain subjects that I talk about. And this is definitely one of them. Anyway, the demonic side of Nephilim lore is actually quite fascinating and well-established, believe it or not. The Book of Giants comes in various forms from various influences. Seriously, there's like, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's like five versions at least, and they're all kind of different and unique. The Aramaic version, for example, actually draws a lot from Mesopotamian myth. And if you remember, I talked about Mesopotamia in past episodes on the Nephilim. This is like the first accepted civilization. It isn't, but it's the first mainstream accepted one. And you'll notice that two giants in it actually have some pretty interesting names. They're both called Gilgamesh, which is a name you've probably heard before. This is somewhat confusing because Gilgamesh actually existed after the flood in his legendary epic. I mean, Gilgamesh was probably 100% Nephilim, but the epic of Gilgamesh is... It's the Near East version of like the Iliad from Greece. You know, like Homer's epic tales of heroes is uh, like uh, the Trojan War, Achilles, Hector, you know, that kind of stuff. This is their version of that. So I guess it kind of makes sense that people would just like shove him into their own local lore in unique ways. Basically, every civilization throughout history does it, so it's nothing new. But the point is that these giants slash Nephilim from the Book of Giants are considered on par or as the same as Gilgamesh. So not all the giants were wiped out in the flood. According to the narrative, just around 90% or something. And then in the Book of Giants, it even talks about the sons of the giants completely surviving. Not only surviving though, but actually being saved by angels. Like, aren't they on opposite teams here, or what? <laughs> I find it interesting how the names and nature of the giants are somewhat different depending on what version of the Book of Giants you're reading. And in some circles, it's actually debated whether the Book of Giants is a piece of Jewish work at all. The Iceans, a Jewish sect of mystics, considered their version Jewish, obviously, but it has a bunch of Sumerian mysticism in it as well. This suggests that their version of the Book of Giants is an amalgamation of legends from the earliest days of human civilization in Mesopotamia, complete with the influence of polytheism. It does, of course, have a very distinct Jewish spin on it, though, as all the Babylonian figures are kind of spun in a darker light. And there are theories out there that some of the people who first came across all like the Mesopotamian hieroglyphs and images and whatnot didn't really know what to make the like make of them, and they. They didn't really understand the language either, cuneiform. And they took these, these stories, I guess, and they tried to form them into something. And that's where like the book of Enoch and the book, you know, all the apocryphal texts come from. This theory is obviously very offensive to some people. And it is just a theory with actually no, no evidence at all to back it up. And my personal opinion is that it's BS because there was people, there were civilizations there throughout the entire time, throughout history, all the way up until Hebrews and whatnot. There was no real Dark Age other than the Bronze Age Dark Age, you know, after the mysterious sea people came. But even then, there were still people living in the areas, and there's no way that they just forgot everything. So let's just throw that out. But I thought that you might want to know that. So, yeah. 
The Book of Giants depicts the Nephilim as monstrous creatures that kill humans and animals on a whim, have sex with whoever they want, and even sexually abuse animals, which would later go on to produce their own hybrids, chimeras, a lot of the half-animal, half-human type beings that you see in mythology. This is where they came from, at least from this narrative. So even though the Nephilim didn't choose to be born, they didn't give heaven a lot of good reasons to spare their lives. They were causing complete chaos, destruction, and suffering across the entire earth. And it's interesting because the giants have conversations and names in the book, as well as like talking to the watchers. And they have conversations between each other and like groups getting together. In fact, they all get together for a council because the Nephilim are having crazy dreams and visions about their own destruction. But the, the thing that scares them is not necessarily just their imminent death. It's what awaits them after death as well. And these visions of their fate caused some giants to have such terror that they were afraid to even sleep. So they were all pretty freaked out to the extreme and came together in a council to talk about their mutual dream visions and maybe figure something out that would relieve some of the stress. Their coming physical death would strip their bodies from their spirits, but their spirits would not find rest. Now, the version of the Book of Giants that has survived intact the most that the Western world subscribes to, for the most part, uses the word evil when describing what kind of spirit the giants would be forced to become. And I'm sure there's different ways to look at it, considering all the different versions of the Book of Giants and the many cultural influences that have had a hand in the narrative. But here is where we can see the possibility of the giant's demise being the origin of what we would consider demons or demonic. In the Book of Giants, not all the Grigori or the Watchers become demons or anything like that. Even in fact, one just hangs himself between heaven and earth, which I found kind of confusing. And uh, many others rounded up and imprisoned. But in the Aramaic version, a lot of the Watchers are just straight up annihilated. There is no imprisonment. There is no wandering the earth as a spiritual demonic being, but complete destruction. However, it gets kind of confusing concerning all the different versions of the Book of Giants, especially with names like Thunder of Heaven, Ramiel, with all the names changing constantly, both Watchers and Giants. I kind of stopped trying to keep up, so keep in mind that there's wiggle room here. But with all the local influences and all the various books, it's definitely deeply embodied myth in the collective human unconscious. In the Manichaean version of the Book of Giants, the Watchers are blatantly referred to as demons, and the Giants are told they're basically going to be thrown into a burning, fiery hell. In this version, the demons believed they'd never lose their power, but what they didn't realize was that their power would be irrelevant. These demons were the Watchers who took human form, hid among humans, and held Heavenly Helpers hostage. Enoch told them that their children would meet a similar fate, saying that the righteous would fly over the fire of damnation and gloat over the souls inside it. That's a quote. But uh, the angels seized the children of the giants and took them to safety in 32 distant towns in a location that's the traditional homeland of the Indo-Iranians. In this version, these people are the originators of arts and crafts. They brought that into the culture. And I'm sorry if I kind of confuse some of these different books of the of giants when I'm talking about them. I am going to kind of mishmash them together and I might be getting wrong which one I'm referring to, but for the most part I'm going to be pretty right on. 
It is interesting, though, how the the arts and crafts, the cultural stuff like that, from this perspective, is like demonic in nature to a degree because the Nephilim become demons. And it's the Nephilim's children that brought us art and craftsmanship. It's like the angels specifically saved them for this reason and it's part of the plan all along. The 200 Watchers fight a massive fiery battle with four angels. These are the same 200 Watchers in the Aramaic version of the Book of Giants. The 200 Watchers are joined by the Giants, which led to casualties of the fallen angels themselves. And the Giants are basically annihilated in this battle, as well as the death of many fallen angels. Still, in the end, the four loyal angels defeat them. Four against 200 sounds like fair odds, right? And the remaining Watchers are bound and imprisoned. So, now there are two really interesting things here. One, this prison for the 200 Watchers was created for them long before they even rebelled. And two, the angels saved the children of the giants, who would later be responsible for art coming in all forms to human culture, with these uh, 32 towns that they took them to, prepared long ahead of time. So if heaven knew this was all going to happen, why didn't they stop it? Or why didn't they do anything to prevent it? What do you think, listeners? Is there something fishy going on? Is this some cryptic free will thing, or... Do you think it was part of the plan to bring arts to humanity in the first place? Well, we can't think that, now can we? Because then that means that demons were meant to exist all along. And that can spark a gut reaction in some people who just heard it and sound pretty bizarre. But there are people who think that they are a form of balance in the world. It is an odd paradox, though, isn't it, compared to the way that we normally think about this kind of topic. But yet another interesting detour from the normal way of thinking about it. There's an apocalyptic battle of four angels versus 200 watchers. This is a kind of a cool imagery to imagine with like their army of giants all fighting. However, this doesn't sound like a flood, does it? Aren't the Nephilim supposed to die in a flood? There are also contradictions of giants slash Nephilim surviving the flood in small numbers too. Saying that uh, all the giants were annihilated isn't very accurate. And then there's another tradition that states that one of the giants actually like clung on to Noah's Ark. He like held on to the side of the big boat. And Noah took pity on him, not kicking him off or trying to dislodge him or anything and just kind of let him survive. At least until the waters died down. And according to this tradition, the survivor would go on to father more half giants and so on and so forth. Allegedly, that's where like Goliath came from as one of the ancestors of this survivor. So we're wading into some pretty muddy waters here because there's also some traditions that there are areas of the Near East that didn't even flood. And a particular giant resided in one of those locations. There are still more contradicting legends too, but what they all have in common is a Nephilim surviving and having more Nephilim babies with humans. These offspring were special, quote unquote, and gifted, obviously being very large. Despite all the contradictions, though, there's always this consistent theme of the Nephilim being wiped out pretty much, but their spirits not going anywhere. And many of the Watchers, too, seem to have escaped. And while both the Watchers and the Nephilim could be considered demons, there is a distinct difference between the two. The origins of demons from this view could be made up in the majority of these disembodied giants. Essentially, demons are Nephilim. 
looking at it from this point of view. And if you remember our good buddy Azazel, the Fallen Watcher, he 100% became a demon because it's explicitly stated. But the Gregori don't all just run off to become demonic entities across the earth. Azazel goes dark side in all the narratives, and he was originally one of the main leaders of the Watchers, although later, it's interesting how he is found in heaven talking to Metatron and for some reason is like allowed access to heaven. And Azazel is bad business in pretty much all accounts, so why is he allowed into heaven? But this question is even weirder considering like the other demons and the more occult lore of angels and demons, whereas a couple of like the infernal kings are allowed into heaven too, including Asmodai. And even Satan appears in the heavenly court, which is bizarre. I guess there's a reason why the more mainstream religious people left this kind of stuff out, isn't there? Too many questions. Anyway, the Book of Giants almost doesn't make sense unless you have knowledge about the Books of Enoch. In fact, it kind of doesn't make sense unless you have read the Books of Enoch. It's just like mumbo-jumbo. What it is, is it's an elaboration of the Books of Enoch. It goes into more detail of all the stuff you read in those books. This is cool because uh, we know about the beyond ancient influences on the Book of Giants, which actually suggests that the Book of Enoch may actually be older than we think it is. Let's delve a little bit more deeper into this Nephilim demon lore after a quick break. You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles. $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Did someone say $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at Amuse.com. Use promo code PODCAST to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's A-M-U-S-E dot com. Have you been wanting to lose weight and get healthy? Now is the perfect time to start Nutrisystem. Enjoy your favorite foods made healthier, delivered free to your door. Right now, you can get Uniquely Yours Ultimate, our most complete, foolproof plan, at an amazing price. Order today and save 50%, plus get an extra $40 off. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash save and discover what millions of people already know. Nutrisystem works. Limitations apply. See website for full offer details. You know those cigarette butts that you see every day? They're made of microplastics and they line our streets and waterways. On California beaches, they're the number one plastic you'll find. Over 35 years, cleanups have collected millions combined. But no matter where you see them, they're all getting smaller, eventually leaching into our food, our air, our water. The tobacco industry's to blame for all of the harm that they do. For the harm to the people we love, and the harm to you too. Learn more at undo.org. As the work of the calls continued, so the fate of the giants was to be trapped on Earth without a body as evil spirits. Before this went down, they all pretty much knew they were screwed from all of those horrible visions. However, they did have hope in vain attempts by the Watchers to curse the angels, which obviously failed. And this seems familiar, well, loosely familiar to the Araman myth and Zoroastrianism, and how Araman and all his spirits are tricked into being trapped on Earth to wander forever. And many people do believe that Zoroastrianism did have a decent amount of influence on Judaism. This is because of Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire. At the time when he conquered Babylon, the Jews were actually exiled there after their homeland was conquered. They even called Cyrus a messiah. 
And you can see a ton of similarities of Judaism and Christianity in Zoroastrianism. Like it's just pretty objective. And Cyrus really helped out the Israelites to an insane degree. They really, really, really loved him. He freed them, let them, uh, I think that he helped reestablish, helped them rebuild the temple or something. I can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, there's a, definitely a Zoroastrianism vibe in Christianity and Judaism. I'm getting a little off track here. Let me refocus a bit. So in the book of Enoch, the Nephilim after death are referred to as evil spirits that rise up against the children of men. In the book of Jubilees, the children of Noah come to him complaining about the demons that were leading people astray. Noah prays to God, saying that the Almighty knows how these demonic spirits, his fathers, acted in his day, pre-flood, and requested God to imprison them. So now this is two direct references to the Nephilim being demons, and it's interesting how God does not imprison many of them, despite Noah's plea. It's similar to how one of the Watchers convinced God not to imprison them all, just a different version. And yet again, one of these fallen, powerful, heavenly entities bargains with God so that many demons may still roam the earth. And considering how their prison was prepared for them long before they rebelled, and how the safe havens for the sons of the giants were prepared long in advance, it seems to me like there's some subtle underlying theme going on that demons have a purpose in the natural world, which is kind of whack to think about if I'm trying to analyze it through like the lens of dogma, I'm pretty sure that a lot of religious people would just consider that blatant heresy. Still, narratively, it is kind of confusing. The Book of Clements says that the souls of the deceased giants were greater than that of human souls, just as how their bodies were larger than ordinary human bodies. This new race of spirits was named demons. However, according to traditional thought, there are also the infernal demons that live and dwell in hell and don't come up earth unless certain criteria are met. And even then, only temporary. And this is your more classical view of the demons, how many are just, they live down there, their home is hell in the infernal realms. And they only sometimes kind of come up to our plane of reality. This specific breed of Nephilim demon wanders the earth pretty much exclusively. They live here just like animals, humans, and nature in general. There is a distinct difference between the infernal demons and the earthly demons, which I find pretty interesting and is backed up in scripture. These demons are also referred to as disembodied spirits or unclean spirits, which I'm sure that you've heard many times before if you're familiar with scripture. And these unclean spirits seek out living bodies to influence to continue to live out their evil ways, just in a different fashion. And this actually suggests that there's a possibility that Fallen angels and demons are different things entirely, with the infernal demons actually being fallen angels or gods, and the Nephilim the truly, truly demons demons as we would think of them. There's a decent amount of evidence in scripture for there being a distinct difference between fallen angels and demons. Fallen angels are referred to as sons of God, gods, powers, principalities, authorities, dominions, hosts of heaven, princes is a popular one. Or some other, you know, whatever heretical title, there's a million of them. But angels interact with humans through dreams, visions, or taking on the appearance of an ordinary man. And all of these encounters, even with the supposed demons from the Bible, 
that are fallen angels, they, they act completely different and aren't really referred to as demons in the Bible. When demons are referenced in the Bible explicitly, they're never physically embodied beings. They're talked about in relation to someone that may be possessed or demonized, and demons speak through these people. They're never even mentioned having a visually physical looking form themselves at all. They influence people's bodies, animal bodies, or basically anything that they're working through, which could even be physical objects. Just something to note. The confusion is strongest with the takeover of Christianity and how they'd call basically any god or, or entity or, or spirit of other cultures outside of the church, they'd call them all demons. Which is kind of the wrong way to practice Christianity, like I kind of briefly said over earlier, because even in the Bible itself, in the earlier scriptures, the unedited stuff, they don't denounce gods. There's the capital G God, and then there's the other gods, which kind of just got transformed into angels later. So like in the scriptures themselves, there's more to it than just there is the church heavenly entities and everything else is a demon. That's just kind of one-dimensional thinking, which is kind of dumb. Looking at it in context of these narratives, to me, it definitely seems like there is a difference between infernal demons and earthly demons, with the Nephilim being the earthly ones and... I in no way invented this or came up with this. This is pretty common thought in many circles. And similar descriptions are found in cultures across the planet throughout human history. And you know, I hate to focus on one narrative element. So sorry if I'm getting a little bit confusing in all this. One source I asked about this subject tried to connect the Goetia demons to King Solomon from the Bible to the Nephilim. And while the person that I asked does know a decent amount theology-wise, they don't know really anything demonology-wise, and I just instantly don't buy it, especially when a lot of the Goetia demons were originally gods from other civilizations in the past. It's just a magic that got disguised over time and hidden, cloaked, and survived that way through the Catholic Church and Inquisition and whatnot and all that persecution. The best way for the ancient knowledge to survive was through coded language and also just through like being a chameleon. And it's through this means that a lot of occult knowledge survived religious persecution. So it's interesting that the apocryphal texts give us alternative narratives to the fallen angels. Most people with an eye for this stuff are pretty much only aware of the Lucifer story. I'm talking about like the religious people or the more mainstream type people. They only know about like, oh, Satan's in hell and Lucifer and all that stuff. You know, the the fall of Lucifer from heaven and how he was defeated by Michael. But the apocryphal text also gives us alternative origins of demons in more way than one. First Enoch 19 even implies demons already existed at the time the Watchers broke their vows and came to earth. In First Enoch chapters 10 through 16, it says that demons are the spirits that go forth from these angels. Quote, Here shall stand in many different appearances the spirits of the angels which have united themselves with women. They have defiled the people and will lead them into error so that they will offer sacrifices to demons as unto gods until the great day of judgment in which they shall be judged till they are finished. Depending on your analysis of that text, your ideas could be different, but it seems like the Nephilim are pretty much demonic at the start in this translation. And it also distinguishes gods from all of everything else. It gets even weirder when later the Watchers are referred to as fallen stars that materialize on Earth. 
and are transformed into bulls. But <clears throat> this isn't as weird as it seems. It's meant to be symbolic, with Earth referred to as the pasture and humankind, oxen. And everything kind of still plays out the same. The angels still come down to smite the fallen stars, except instead of a fiery epic battle between the giants and 200 watchers versus four loyal angels, the Nephilim mostly destroy themselves. They're given powerful weapons by the good angels and they just kind of, they kind of <laughs> self-destruct on their own, killing each other. Yet still, the theme remains that the Nephilim spirits only have one fate being in store for them, and that is to be trapped on Earth in basically a permanent disembodied state. And that's all their existence will ever be until the destruction of creation. I wonder if the sons of the giants that were spared by the good angels and credited with bringing the arts to human culture, I wonder if those people, if they suffered the same fate or suffered the same fate, because I guess their bloodline would still be around today. In the book of giants, there is basically no elaboration on that. But I think that they would. I mean, aren't they still unnatural and whatnot? But then again, if they don't commit sin and they were spared for a reason, I don't see why they would be punished like that, but I don't know. Could be wrong. I mean, they are demigod-like to an extent, right? But would just being children of the Nephilim really damn them to the same fate? Or would their actions in life play a factor? In any case, their fate could be to become demonic upon death as well. So the Book of Giants is pretty much unique in this category concerning the sons of the Nephilim. And there's more than one confusing hint that the Nephilim actually existed, at least in some form, even before the Watchers came to Earth. Depending on translation and analysis, of course, when talking about the descent of the fallen angels, it says, quote, The Nephilim were in the Earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, the same that were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now hear me out, but if we're going word for word, this is weird because it specifically states that the Nephilim were in the earth, not on the earth. I double checked this with Hebrew and other translations, and that's legit. It says they were already in the earth when the sons of God, watchers, came into the daughters of men. Or when they descended, I mean, too. So, what? What were the Nephilim before the watchers came? Did they already exist in some spiritual way? Were they like primordial elemental spirits or something? They just inhabit the bodies of the watcher offspring? It also says that they were in the earth in those days and also after that. This absolutely implies the Nephilim were around the Earth before the Watchers and after. Oh, and this is the legit uh, mainstream scripture too, by the way, that I just quoted and talked about. This is like from the book of Genesis. This isn't any of the apocryphal texts. And this point of view is problematic to all the narratives we've covered because it implies that the Nephilim are an entirely separate spiritual entity altogether than the Watchers or like a different race of humans that dwell on the earth or something like that. Some scholars say that they are just a warring clan of people who were famous. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 33, it states, quote, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. Anak means giant, but it also means great. Is it possible that the stories got mixed together down the millennia, and there are two distinctly different beings, but both being referred to as Nephilim. 
You could also just say that, and it's a legit argument, you could say that it's just semantics or old-timey talk that we're not familiar with and the whole insinuation of the Nephilim being there before the Watchers is just kind of like a modern way to look at it. But from a grammatical and contextual standpoint, some scholars do say that it's, it only makes sense if there are two different versions of Nephilim and that it's possible that one of these versions doesn't have any connection to the Watchers at all. Nephilim could have been like a more broad of a title back in the day and the context lost the history is what I'm kind of getting at. The way the text is presented in the book of Genesis, this is, I mean, come on, it could definitely go either way. I guess these primordial spirits could also be analogous to the jinn. The jinn are one of the, the like spiritual race of people who actually exist on earth before humans. They're primordial spirits. And this is basically found in all the ancient lore of the East as well as in uh, modern uh, modern Islam, but through different points of view, because modern Islam throws a lot of that dogma on them. And these similarities between Nephilim and Jinn has not gone unnoticed by pretty much all researchers. These demons in the earth very much could be older than the Watchers coming down, or even humanity, if we put them in the role of Jinn. Or, you know, the ancient people writing all this stuff down could not have really been able to distinguish the difference between in the earth and on the earth, especially since they did not have nearly the scientific understanding as we have today. It could have been no difference to them. They didn't have to be more explicit or, um, you know, like distinct and specific in their wording because there wasn't a broader view of things. Also, only 200 watchers are the fallen angels, and there's still plenty of watchers that never fell. Watchers are often referred to as the Holy Ones. And if you subscribe to this view of things, there's a Holy One, a Watcher, watching you right now as you're listening to this listener. On top of that, there's the some of the Watchers from the 200 fallen angels that never had relations with women. There's some that didn't. They remained good, I guess, is what you could say, which doesn't make sense considering the reason that we're given over and over and over on why they fell in the first place was because really wanting to have sex with women. They just really like wanted a body and experience that. But some of the watchers that came down with the 200 didn't do any of that stuff. Did they become infernal demons too? Or some of the more hardcore version of the demons because some watchers weren't imprisoned or they escaped. This is like where Azazel comes in. He's one of the hardcore ones that escaped and is uh, still causing mayhem. But the majority of them, like nine-tenths, are locked away in the infernal realms. I don't know, though, because there's still the thought that if... Like, you have to deserve that kind of treatment, you know? It has to make sense. The Christian form of people saying that people were going to go to hell just because they never became a Christian. It's like, what about the people who live in places across the world on, like, an island in this area that's, like, never experience civilization it would be idiotic to say that they're going to hell that's stupid you have to it's the intent that sends you to hell i guess i'm just kind of rambling but there is the version of christianity that was around before rome turned it into a state religion that is the more accurate version of christianity and mostly been lost to history but that version of christianity doesn't even look anything like the like the oppressive form of it that we see through the dark ages and middle ages but again, subjective. Think whatever you want. That's just my opinion. 
So it's weird to just wonder, I mean, what happened to these watchers that didn't sin? Did they just become infernal demons too? Or maybe they had some secret duties only known to them? You see, in certain circles of demonology, there is an angel for every demon that is directly linked to it and can be called upon to either bind it or protect one from it. And these are the not the earthly Nephilim spirit demons. These are the, the demon demons, the big boys. The ones that can take on a physical form, or visually physical at least. And if it is such a big deal to come to Earth as a Watcher and all Nephilim are disembodied demons on Earth, it's possible that some of these not-evil Watchers could serve as like jailers of some sort to the Earthbound demons. After all, it's highly implied in the Bible that some angels, specifically Archangels, can come and go without it being a really big deal, but the other divine entities cannot. It could be really convenient to have some permanent holy ones stationed on Earth to make sure demonic Nephilim spirits don't get too out of hand. I'm going in the thought process of the Nephilim demons and the infernal demons being different. Nephilim demons do seem more like ghosts than the demons we're used to seeing in pop culture and horror movies other than like the possession stuff. Because Nephilim demons possess the shit out of everything. Nephilim travel from body to body, seeking rest and ultimately never finding it. They want to like live, they kind of can be invited to certain people who are doing things that they either enjoyed when they were actually an alive Nephilim in a body, or stuff that they think that they might enjoy in your body. The Bible says in Matthew 43, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. And then in 44 it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Uh, that's kind of, it's kind of cryptic, but it's talking about how if you got your shit together, demons can't really possess you. But the scary part is, if it's just like one or maybe two of these Nephilim demon spirits, it's kind of subtle and not even noticeable a lot of the time. But when you get into like legion territory of these things in you, then it's very noticeable. But even though they go from person to person or animal to animal, they also reside in nature, like trees, caves, or even the wind. As I said, they, they can inhabit objects too, even structures and stuff like that. They can go into animals and make them do weird stuff, but they especially prefer to inhabit humans mostly. But they very much exist in a non-physical, like a non-corporeal way. So if someone is getting crazy dreams of a horrifying entity or seeing physical manifestation, that's not a Nephilim demon. It is a fallen divine entity. It is a fallen angel. And the infernal demons are far more powerful than the Nephilim demons and most likely command them to a degree in many aspects. Like if you look at the Goetia demons, how the infernal demons, they control like these legions of spirits and those legions of spirits. There's some Nephilim definitely in there. Or all of them, who knows? However, these Nephilim demons can almost universally pretty much not inhabit water. In fact, they're averse to it. This also goes for the, the other forms of demons, like the infernal demons and whatnot, but specifically the Nephilim demon are very, very, very much just can't stand water at all. In the Nephilim case, it could be because it's symbolic for their destruction in the flood in certain narratives, but demons can't cross running water, for example and they cannot inhabit or be around things in moving water. 
So like uh, taking a shower is actually one of the safest places from demonic forces and rain temporarily purifies their influence wherever it lands. And it's about that time. We'll be right back after a quick break. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. there thanks for listening to cryptic chronicles the show is sponsored by blueberry and if you're interested in starting your own podcast use our link we'll even give your podcast a shout out go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the blueberry link on the homepage. by doing so you'll be helping the show blueberry is optimized for itunes as well as all podcast hubs you won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees in fact you won't have to leave your own website you'll have your own rss feed and no third-party sites Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. In the Book of Jubilees, which is referred to as the Lesser Genesis, and elaborates on the creation story. The contradictions and different names of all the characters and whatnot are just uh, pretty much kicked up a notch. And like all apocryphal texts, it's mostly not canonical to the mainstream. It is an Ethiopian Christianity, though, which is interesting. The apocryphal texts are considered to come from Second Temple ideology, which is a, a time that the religious views of the Hebrews were in great flux. As I said in previous Nephilim episodes, the Hebrews only slowly moved away from their Canaanite and uh, like ancient influences of all the great powers and slowly moved uh, towards like a more distinct cultural view of their religion. Um, it was a process, not an event. That is unless you literally believe the Bible and the, like all the mainstream orthodoxy in that case, more power to you. And in the Book of Jubilees, there are many elements that seem familiar 
if you compare it to the books of Genesis or Exodus, but there are also many foreign aspects as well. One of the instant contrasts is the prominence of women, which in early Hebrew was far more prevalent. After all, God originally did have a wife named Asherah, which a lot of people don't know about who are orthodox about all this stuff. And there's still lots of references in the Bible of, to Asherah to this day. They've just been kind of edited and smudged around. But in the highly brutal world during the age of Aries, that masculine energy was overflowing. If you believe in that kind of stuff. It was also just an extremely brutal world back then. Uh, pretty much beyond our comprehension of how we live today. And people did whatever they had to to survive. And, you know, there's no excuses for anything. But the yin and yang was increasingly out of balance during this time. So the prominence of women in the Book of Jubilees is unique, to say the least. No matter, no matter how you try and spin it. And the retcon is pretty obvious for scholars who look deep enough. Many anonymous women in Genesis are given names in the Book of Jubilees. And it's weird that these pre-flood, pre-Exodus people somehow know Mosaic Law, which doesn't make sense, because they, they know Mosaic Law in the book, is what I mean. But um, it doesn't make sense because how could they know Mosaic Law thousands and thousands of years before Moses existed? Other than in some Jewish traditions that the ancient patriarchs were aware of what Moses was going to teach somehow ahead of time. This idea is found in the Muslim religion as well. But as to the author of the book itself, it's really unknown. And some think it's one author, whereas others think it's many. But what really stands out is just how unique the Watcher tradition goes down in the Book of Jubilees. In this tradition, the Watchers did not come down to Earth initially with bad intentions. They wanted to do what is just and upright upon the Earth, as an exact quote. This is pretty much the opposite of all the narratives we've already been going over, and it is unique in that they were corrupted over time. And even then, not all of them. They didn't immediately begin breeding with humans and whatnot, or initially even come down specifically to breed with humans. In the other versions, this was their direct desire. But in the Book of Jubilees, their intentions in coming to Earth were 100% benevolent. Eventually, the Watchers began to marry willing human women. It was not just their offspring that became corrupted, but animals and the material world itself. The very nature of the human mind became corrupted. And it's this supernatural corruption that needed to be cleansed, not necessarily the Nephilim or humanity. I mentioned earlier how Noah asked God to bind the demon spirits so they'd stop bothering him and his offspring, but Mestema a high-ranking demon, convinced God to release him and a number of other demons so that he can fulfill his purpose in misleading humanity. God bizarrely totally goes along with this compromise in acknowledgement of Mestema's purpose and frees many of the demons. These demons are the spirits of the Nephilim as well as the more powerful fallen watchers, it seems. And I might not have been clear earlier uh, um, when I was talking about the two distinctions between the Nephilim and the Watcher Demons. It's not necessarily that the Watcher Demons have a physical body, but they can appear in a visually spiritual form, like, you know, like you see in movies, how, they, how demons take forms and whatnot, and can appear visually to the eyes. The Nephilim are universally invisible. They have no embodied state whatsoever. That's what I meant by that. 
But what's really vexing is just how many times God compromises with demonic forces in these apocryphal texts. It happens again in the book of Job and even with the dark angel Samael. But what's really truly of note here is the specific word demon that is being attributed to Nephilim and Watcher spirits for the first time. Specifically the word demon. Like the way we would think of it. And a lot of these thinkers like to say that people who documented ancient mythologies and stuff like that were actually under the influence of disembodied Nephilim demons. Which is problematic in myriad ways and probably pretty offensive to a lot of groups saying that a lot of the aspects of people's mythology, ancient texts, uh, folklore, I mean, this even includes the Bible, saying all this stuff is like demonically influenced is like the embodiment of heresy and irreverence. But I'd be doing you a disfavor if I left that bit out. And me personally, I don't really entertain that idea. But then again, it's not being biased. It's not singling anyone out. It's literally everyone from this or I mean like all cultures from this point of view, everyone's myths, mythologies, religions are influenced by demons from this perspective. Or the majority of it, I mean. I mean, come on. But living through living humans is the only thing that gives Nephilim even the slightest degree of peace. This form of demonic influence is not the, necessarily, is not the possession type from like horror movies and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's mostly unconscious. And so subtle, it's unnoticeable. It doesn't mean that they don't do the other hardcore evil horror stuff. Just saying the majority of the time, that's not the case. Many times this demonic possession or the demonic influence channeled through someone is for pretty petty and mundane experiences. Like they just want to inhabit someone eating something that they think that they'd like if they were alive and they could eat. Or inhabiting someone who's drinking alcohol and the Nephilim spirit loved alcohol when it was alive. It's a, it's like a form of entertainment in many ways. And a lot of times this, uh, this influence and possession goes completely unnoticed. And it comes and goes pretty quickly too. Not all the time do they permanently just stay in one body. A lot of them just hop from one to another, to another, to another, to another, so on and so forth. Always in the search of new sensation. This narrative of demonology and the Nephilim may seem kind of freaky. But just remember, it's a narrative, and only one of many ways to look at demonic possession and demons in general. It makes them seem more like parasites than anything else for the most part. What I find confusing about the Book of Jubilees is that um, if God made the flood to wipe out the corruption caused by the corrupted watchers in the material world, then why were their spirits just left to do whatever afterward? To the point where Noah had to ask for help. I mean... Wouldn't heaven know, like, what's going to happen? God definitely would know, right? He's omni omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscience, omni-everything. So, from a mundane perspective, it does seem kind of fishy. Like, God might be putting on some kind of act. But it could also just be that that was all part of the plan all along. The Nephilim disembodied spirits could be a tool for balance in some way. I mean, from this perspective, don't take anything I'm saying as a valid conclusion. Demons are found in all cultures, after all, and all are complete with their own identities and diverse set of origins. But to contrast these humanoid Nephilim, there are also the Chimera ones, which are kind of awesome and my favorite, and I had never actually heard of before researching this episode. 
Remember when I said that the Watchers did some weird stuff with animals? Well, in the Book of Jubilees, it specifically states that. And the Nephilim did too. So there were the human-animal hybrids that also roamed the Earth before the Flood. These being like horrific monsters and stuff from myth and folklore. They're like the half-animal, half-human creatures found in pretty much all lore across the world. These demonic Nephilim, they lack much of the intelligence of the humanoid Nephilim demons, but they still have an animal cunning. In the Unseen Realm, there is a diversity of Nephilim spirits, it seems. The hybrid animal Nephilim demons are much more predatory and primordial. They're much more comfortable inhabiting other animals, specifically predator animals when they're hunting and feasting on prey. And humans come into contact with these things a lot, lot less frequently. But they do have no problems whatsoever, messing with people nonetheless. So there were human-animal hybrids that were also on the Earth before the Flood or the apocalyptic battle. And you know, supposedly, of course, this is where the, the Minotaur myth comes from. And basically all those semi-human animal myths. In ancient Eastern traditions, demons were considered less powerful than a god but endowed with individuality. They were more like familiars and not really on par with the venerated deities or spirits. But what's unique in Eastern traditions of the pre-Christian era is that demons were thought to be able to breed. So just because Nephilim are mostly referred to as male because of the era, the stories documented, you know, being like super male-orientated, macho, machismo, 100% across the board all the time, 24-7, there are most assuredly both male and female Nephilim demons. And in some points of view, still able to have children like demonic children with one another. Disembodied children in like a spiritual way. Which, which is pretty bizarre and I did not know it was a thing. At least in the Christian sort of side of things, like the Judeo-Abrahamic uh, religions type of stuff. I've never heard that before. But one of the key features to take away from the older texts and the newer texts and the, comparing that with the apocryphal texts is that a lot of the times the Nephilim are not referred to as the Nephilim or they're not referred to as demons. They have all these other names where I guess it's uh, they're in the modern Bible, they're re referenced as giants a lot. But utilizing other translations and the apocryphal texts, these are the names that are actually referring to those giants, or Nephilim, or demons. The Anakim, nine occurrences. The Amim, three occurrences. The Rechaim, 32 occurrences. The Rephaim, 17 occurrences. The Zezim, one occurrence. The Astaroth Karnim, one occurrence. So it's pretty interesting just how edited out of history they are in modern mainstream Christian Bibles. People of faith talk about Satan and Lucifer and like all that. You know, you've heard it a million times, probably the fall of Lucifer fighting Mikael and the being cast out of heaven. But the scripture itself actually doesn't necessarily paint the same picture that they're trying to portray. In fact, the majority of this stuff is outside of scripture dogma but obviously influenced all the dogma within the religion, which is pretty cool. It's easy to see the similarities between the fall of the Watchers, Samyaza, Satanael, Azazel, and um, all of these. It's basically analogous to Lucifer slash Satan stuff. Satanael, one of the versions of Samyaza, the leader of the Watchers. 
And it's funny how this Satanael sounds specifically familiar to Satan, which is suspicious. And um, when you actually look for the whole Lucifer falling from heaven, like Satan story that is so common in Christianity, when you actually look for it in the Bible, it's not really there. And Lucifer is just the Italian version of the word that was translated over as the same. I'm referring to, I think I mentioned this before, how it should be the morning star, basically. And it seems in, in the part where it's talking about Lucifer that it's referencing like a Babylonian king in reference with the morning star because the Babylonian king is going to fall. Don't take my word for it, though, because I really enjoy the whole Lucifer narrative. It's just there's a lot of people who say that that necessarily isn't what it seems to be, especially when you do the proper translations. Oh, in Latin. I meant Latin, not Italian, obviously. Don't get me wrong. Anyone can bend over backwards with confirmation bias to prove anything. But the, the narrative that's mostly popular that people know of really isn't there. And if we're talking about the pre-Christian era, we're talking about like the old Judaism. Satan mentioned in the Bible is like more like a title. And not only that, he works with God and is even allowed in the heavenly courts of the Elohim. The Elohim being the pantheon of gods, with El the creator God first among them. Later, El would just become God with the capital G, and the pantheon of gods would become angels. And then even later on, they translated again to say that the, it was they changed the Elohim and then the angels. They changed it to the sons of Israel, which doesn't make sense because the whole context of what's going on during that part of the scripture is during the fall of Babylon, which is like a bajillion years before any of that. So canonically, it doesn't make any sense. People just wanted to edit out all of that stuff slowly over time and uh, didn't care how much it didn't make sense. They're just shoving that square into the circle hole. And as I said, I've gone over this a lot of times, but slowly that kind of stuff just dissolved over time into what we got today. And I kid you not, Satan is there in the heavenly court interacting with angels and everybody else, just like any other heavenly entity that <laughs> belongs there. And it's perfectly normal that Satan is there. Pretty cool. Well, I mean, it's not cool, but it's interesting. You know what I mean? And uh, remember the demon that I just mentioned that convinced God to let him and a bunch of his kind free? It makes a little bit more sense now that uh, God would be willing to like negotiate with the demons. They do have a purpose. You see, the whole version of the Christian God being 100% pure, holy, and good. Of course, these are just subjective human notions, but to Judaism, specifically the older forms of Judaism in Hebrew, their version of God wasn't this purely whole, light, good, you know, all that. Well, of course he's holy, but it wasn't like how we would look at good and evil isn't the same. See, their God is more dynamic because it is the embodiment of all things. So that means light and darkness. All things in the material world are mirrored in God, and the Ancient of Days is beyond human comprehension. So they didn't even really try to analyze it. And that's why a lot of the, when Christianity was coming around, a lot of the Jews didn't want to convert to it because the Christian version of God just didn't really make sense to them. So if you're wondering why there's some like weird stuff like going on in there with God negotiating with demons and letting demons go free, there you go. From the Hebrew side of things, it makes perfect sense. Gotta have balance, gotta have that yin and yang, gotta have night and day, hot and cold, 
Otherwise, nothing would be there in the first place. We live in a world of contrast, and nothing exists unless there's something to contrast it. At least according to this stuff, you know what I'm saying. Just trying to make sense of why would God, from this perspective, be releasing or allowing demons to go free. You know what I mean? Anyway, nothing will ever stop the Lucifer slash Satan narrative, but it is interesting to see it mirrored in forbidden books of the scripture. From a Christian perspective, their story does exist, just not in the way they think. And it seems like a lot of people who pushed the, the ruling dogma after the 4th century were very aware of the books of Enoch and the other apocryphal texts, despite their attempts to censor them from public knowledge. You'll notice in the New Testament that Jesus himself and the apostles refer to the apocryphal texts many times. And you can think of people who were reading this, you know, in like the Middle Ages and whatnot. They're like, what are these people talking about? Because they had no access to the apocryphal texts. So we have a, well, yeah, that's just, that's just interesting. But um, I should probably get more on track. I think I've gone off a little bit here in uh, too much elaboration mode. But what about the survivors? The Nephilim were in the earth before and after, as stated in the scripture. They are mentioned later in the mainstream Bible as an obstacle to the Israelites when they reached the promised land. One of the areas said not to be destroyed in the flood is Syria, according to some traditions. And that's where the land of Israel, how we would think of it, is located today. At least one of the Nephilim survived and went on to have children in the area, according to this idea. And the promised land is exactly that spot where these Nephilim ancestors resided. In Numbers 13, it says that the Anach, or Anakim, one of the names for the Nephilim, were in the area when spies were sent to go check it out, which really bummed out the Hebrews because they did not want to fight these giant superhumans. This lack of faith angers God, who makes them wander in the desert for 40 years. In Deuteronomy, they are called the Rephaim, and the people of Ammon called them Zamzamim. They were abnormally large people who were mighty warriors and capable of taking on many normal men single-handedly. The biblical hero Joshua then slowly exterminates every man, woman, and child in genocide throughout every city connected to their city. But in the end, though they do conquer the land, the Nephilim escape extermination once again. They settle in the lands of Gaza, Gath, and Ishtad. Eventually, though, their time does run out. In the era of King David, the last of the Nephilim are finally killed. Allegedly. And just as laid out in the apocryphal texts, the spirit of the Nephilim did not go away. In Psalms 88.10, quote, Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? End quote. Now, this doesn't sound very revealing and is actually at uh, face value kind of cryptic, but when looked at in Hebrew and in the context, it does reveal a little bit more. Te'ese, will you perform? Pele, wonders. Halam, methim, for the dead. Rahem, will the spirits. Yakumu, rise. Yavducha, in praise. Salah, you. See the kicker here, I know you can't see this visually, but the kicker here is the direct word used for will of the spirits, which is Rahim, one of the names used for the Nephilim exterminated in the Promised Land. Cool, right? Nobody would have even caught that normally without the proper idea of what to look for and 
tools to find it. See how if you don't know Hebrew and the culture, a lot of this stuff is just lost in translation? The disembodied spirits of the Nephilim are what is being directly referred to here. Not just any normal human spirit or anything like that. Or not in nature spirits, nothing like that. Not any dead. It's specific. The normal word for a dead person in Hebrew is methem, which is substantially different and would be used in a past sense. It's, a, it's not a present tense word. And that's like, a, be it family members or famous figures or anyone. And when you understand the difference between the Rahim and the Methim, then in scripture, when they're talking about the spirit world, many more references to demons pop up. Or, you know, I'm talking about Nephilim spirits. Like in Isaiah 26, 14, quote, They are dead, Methim. They will not live. They are shades. Rahim, they will not arise. There be demons in that quote. And uh, in Job 26, 5, 6, we find out that the Rahim are in the underworld. And of course, according to the way that they looked at them, some were imprisoned there, while others were free to wander the earth. In Isaiah 14, 9, it says that the underworld is waiting for someone to die. And the Rahim are described there as, quote, all those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones, end quote. Sounds like Dark Souls 3 to me. But the same word for leaders in this passage literally means goats. And it's used to describe Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 39.18, who were both Rahim. I left a lot of these names out when talking about the apocryphal text because I didn't want to confuse you with all the different Nephilim names. But a lot of them actually have names in these texts. And these two are probably the most important like ringleaders of them. Remember in the past episodes how I talked about the Nephilim being the men of renown and um, like the great heroes, but their name kind of translates to the fallen, but not literally to fall or to descend, but it's like considered an honorable fallen, like in battle or something like that. Anyway, my point is just that, just like how, um, you know, in the lore and scriptures, it says that the Nephilim went around, spread around to rule the earth early in the days of humanity? Well, this is a direct reference to them. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. Which is actually kind of creepy to analyze more, but let's move on. This is the canonical origins of demons backed up in the Abrahamic worldview, pretty objectively. And I'm surprised that most Christians don't really understand it or have looked into it, but then again, they're not supposed to really go outside of their lane, so it makes sense. Demons are Nephilim, Nephilim are demons, but not all demons are Nephilim. The fallen angels are on a different level entirely, though demons nonetheless. There's lots of different ways and terms to distinguish the two, the Nephilim demons and the Watcher demons. I prefer Infernal demons to be specific about the more powerful Watcher demons, especially since they don't really get to escape and go around on the earth unless very specific needs for them to come are met. And even then, they can only stay for a short time, other than some other very specific Watcher demons, such as Azazel. Fallen angels are vastly superior to the Nephilim demons, and they probably command them kind of like a personal little army or something. Quote, Evil spirits proceed from their bodies, because they are created from above, their beginning and first basis being from the Holy Watchers. They will be evil spirits upon the earth 
and will be called evil spirits. End quote. And it gets more confusing when you throw other gods into the mix. Now, if you're a Christian listening to this, hear me out because even God in the Bible doesn't deny the existence of other gods, canonically. He says, you shall have no gods before me. And with bad translation, the confusion only increases. In Deuteronomy 32, 7-9, it says, El divided mankind according to the sons of God. Now, you got to replace the sons of God with Elohim in the original translations, the earlier versions. Elohim not singular, Elohim being plural. These are the gods, basically. Um, but we don't use the word gods, now do we? <laughs> At least for angels. And that's why in the Greek version it says according to the number of angels of God. So God put gods or angels or guiding spirits in places of rulership over human civilizations. And the Watcher being called the Ben Elohim or Benai Elohim, depending. And it, this puts, uh, knowing this, puts uh, things in a strange picture. Elohim is plural, meaning the gods, analogous to a pantheon. The Ben Elohim, meaning sons of the gods. So the Watchers appear to be the children of the gods, and their children, the Nephilim, descendants of the gods. But basically, my point here is that some demons are straight up gods, as well as Nephilim. It's all a matter of point of view. You want to know more about all this? Go back and check out, I think that it's episode one, part one on the Nephilim, if you need a refresher. But indeed, it's objectively factual that the term Elohim was originally plural and only altered later to reference capital G, God. With the word Elohim coming from one of the greatest influences on the early Hebrews, and that was the Canaanites, whose pantheon literally is El, and his pantheon, the gods, specifically called the Elohim. Weird, right? Uh, this makes the spirit world from the Abrahamic worldview far more interesting, as well as ancient grimoires like the Goetia that contain spirits that are not what they seem at face value. Not that demons of the Goetia are watchers or Nephilim like I already said. But I mean, come on, they're absolutely Elohim. So even demons are not always demons. We have to keep in mind the dogma of the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, basically decreeing that all that is not of the Holy Trinity for what the priests want people to think are demons, especially the deities of pagan spiritual beliefs, especially them. The nations having guiding angels also appear in Daniel 10.13, where we find out that Michael is one of the angels over Israel, and he had a conflict with the prince of Persia, or, when translated correctly, the angel that rules over Persia. Prince is a title originally associated with specific angels, and then later infernal demons. But yeah, and what's interesting is that this idea was widespread in the ancient East, with many even agreeing with the Bible in this manner. Other civilizations too believed in one super god who assigned the lesser gods to nations as patrons, um, like Plato even said this, and it was a pretty widely accepted idea, way more than most hardcore like monotheist modern Christians might think. It's like actually, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. The whole idea of one super god and then all the other gods being smaller forms is ancient. 
the term gods and angels and princes can all be interchangeable. And by today's standards concerning Abrahamic religions, these gods would be viewed as demons. In Psalm 82, God gets pissed off at the Elohim. Quote, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And I'm quoting God. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. End quote. So according to this accurately translated scripture, many of the divine beings angered God with their incompetence. What's truly interesting is that he refers to them not only as gods, but also as sons of God, in like a weird third-person sort of way. And then like the last bit too, it's like a, almost like he is a like a stand-in for God or something, like the voice of God. It could be Metatron, although it's obvious these sons of God are higher on the hierarchy than the Watchers and probably have like an entirely different category. I don't know though. Um... This show was supposed to be mainly about the Nephilim, the topic of this episode, but I thought I'd go just a little bit step further and not only give the origins of the Nephilim demons or Watcher demons, but straight up gods that were cast down to become demons. But then again, remember that not all of these things are demons. All Nephilim are demons, but not all demons are Nephilim. And suddenly, like uh, according to this narrative at least, the traditional Christian view on the origins of demons becomes incredibly simplistic, when in truth, the origin is far more abstract and interesting. However, I did not even get into like the Shadim or there's all kinds of other demons that are entirely separate from these big three. But that's a tale for another time. That's all for today's episode, listener. Hope you enjoyed this special episode on the demonic origins of the Nephilim. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. You look for us, and guess what? We will be there. If you can, listener, please make sure to like, comment, or review wherever you hear this content. The interaction makes the algorithm like the episode, and it will help spread and grow the show. Though Cryptic Chronicles is free to listen to, the cost to produce it is substantial. By pleasing the gods of the algorithm, you are doing more than your fair share in supporting the show. 
And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles and you happen to be awesome, then support the show on Patreon for just a dollar. You can unlock full uncensored shows, no ads or anything like that, and be able to listen to episodes months before they're released to the public. Like right now, I got like five episodes ahead of time. I know I normally release like one or two a month, but there's like months ahead on Patreon. So make sure to download the Patreon app on your phone because it's right there. Just like listening to YouTube, Spotify, any of the other like stuff that you use to listen to stuff. Get the app to Patreon on your phone. Boom. Good to go. Just a click away. You'll also get access to exclusive podcast episodes, but just a few here and there. Not gonna lie. And depending on your pledge, you can even do other awesome stuff like join the Discord channel. Well, that's for everybody, but uh, you can like come on and host the show with me if you want. It's just all kinds of awesome stuff. Just go to CrypticChronicles.com and at the top, click on the Chronicler's Vault. It's a link to Patreon. You'll be good to go. Also, you can just do slash Patreon Cryptic Chronicles. That'll get you to it too. If you're on YouTube, you can just click on the YouTube icon at the top of the homepage actually not too hard. I'm going to eventually get around to a subscribe star. I've been asked to make one, but I just, I'm so busy. And uh, once my focus is gone, it's gone. And I'm usually just working most of the time. As always, I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, Jimmy Woods, Grodius, Sophia Owens, Scott Wellman, and Beware the Q. Right now in the Discord, we're talking about like future content I'm going to cover, and uh, Grodius had the great idea to ask for shadow people, so I'm going to be working on a shadow person episode. It's going to be pretty creepy. If you want to come and hang out with us and kind of figure out what content is going to be made, where the show is going to go, uh, yeah, come support me on patreon dollar a month ashley will beat you up and we'll all have a good time thanks for supporting cryptic chronicles but most of all thanks for listening and as one of the most interesting podcasters in the world once said love yourself think for yourself and question authority